Good morning. Today I'll be reading from uh, Acts 7:58 or 7. Yes, that's right. At through 8. 8. Those annoying numbers. All right. Let's go. All right. Here we go. Uh, hmm. Acts 7, 8. Yeah. Um, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him, him being Stephen, and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man and named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold these sins against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged out both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. We're going to continue our series in Acts today, talking about being a witness. And I want to start with this. We're going to, we're going to talk today about going from pain to joy. Um, I think this is something our church has been experiencing a lot of, is pain and how to work through pain. And this text shows us how to go from pain to joy. Before we get into that, I want to start with a very funny and true bit uh, of comedy that actually launched the career before the massive descent of Louis C.K.'s comedy life, uh, in which he was on the Conan O'Brien show and he did a bit called Everything's Amazing and Nobody's Happy. Uh, and he says, we have wasted all of the most amazing things on, I will use better language than him, the crummiest generation. And he joked that we, the newest thing at the time that he was doing this bit in 2014 was internet on airplanes. And he said, you know, this was like, not only are we flying through the sky, not only is that just amazing enough, but we can actually just get on the internet on the airplane. He says, this is this brand new thing. And then suddenly he's on this flight and they go, you may now open your laptops and connect to the Wi-Fi. And they go, oh, I'm sorry. We apologize. The internet has gone down. And the guy next to him goes, what a load of BS. And he goes, you're literally upset about something you didn't know existed until 10 seconds ago. Everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Uh, for a lot of us, we have this kind of pain in this country day to day, if we're honest with ourselves. A lot of the pain we experience is this, I didn't even know this existed until 10 seconds ago, and now it doesn't work, and I'm frustrated, and I have pain. I saw a sticker on a friend's fridge that said, help me, I had a person praying, and it said, help me, Lord, with this completely unnecessary and totally self-imposed problem. There are many things like that in our lives if we're honest. But there are also very real pains in our life, things that we deal with again and again. Maybe none of us have dealt with the kind of real persecution that we're seeing in this section of Acts. None of us maybe have been hunted down and imprisoned because of our beliefs. 
So it could be tempting to read a text like today and say, I'm either not worthy of this, I can't identify with these people, I'm not persecuted. And on some level, you might be right. But the Bible is not here to invalidate your pain. The Bible is here to show pain against the persecuted, against the Christian, and show how they work through it. We do have tons to be happy about, and much of our pain is self-imposed. In fact, Louis, the allegations that came against Louis C.K. were self-imposed pain, if you want to think about it. He blew it. And the allegations of sexual misconduct were as a result of his sin. That is self-imposed pain. We bring about a lot of self-imposed pain from our own sin, but it's still real pain. And the Bible still has a real answer for it. Perhaps some of your pain, if you're like me, is made worse in the horrible practice and habit of self-pity that maybe some people can identify with, where you have the pain and then you decide to just sit in the pain and drink and eat from the pain three meals a day, nursing your victimhood. But it doesn't matter. This passage speaks to all of that pain. And we all have to deal with pain. If we remember it, we're just jumping back into Acts and I'm not going to review the whole thing. I would encourage you guys all to go back and read Acts chapter 1 through 8 as we're getting back into the rhythm of this. But if you remember in Acts 1, I talked about how the disciples were struggling with the fact that Jesus ascended into the clouds and now like he's gone. So we have this great mission. We're super excited to do it with Jesus. He's back. He's showing us his wounds. What? Like you're taking off? we got to do this alone. And then we see in Acts from the story of Pentecost moving forward, how the church begins to be accompanied by Jesus. And they find that everything they're doing with, while he's not physically with them in the flesh, he is with them in the spirit. And we see how the church listens to the Holy Spirit, God on the move and follows him to the ends of the earth. In a way, through their heartache, they are leveling up in their belief, into faith, into joy, and into explosive joy, which is what we see in this chapter. All of our life's journey is a journey actually from pain to joy. To follow the spirit of Jesus for anyone in this room to live a life of purpose. Pain is not an example necessarily of sin. Pain is like muscle soreness when you're practicing to run a marathon. It's intrinsic. It's part of the actual process of doing the thing right. In order to run a marathon, you're going to have to have pain. If you avoid pain and you don't want to have that muscle soreness, then you will not be able to run that marathon. It's as simple as that. So churched or not, anyone who cares to stick with a life of meaning is on a journey where they must learn to move from pain to joy. As a Christian, we believe beyond this that the purpose of our life is God moving humanity, moving all of us towards wholeness to lead us into his presence. This is the story of the Bible, is God leading his people, his chosen people, through their pain into the presence of God, into the wholeness in the person 
of Jesus. All right, so today what I want to do is to be rather expedient in moving us from pain to joy and giving us some tools in our life. I want to be fairly practical today walking through this text. Okay, if we look at the beginning of this text, this text is in three chunks. The first chunk has to do with Stephen and Saul, verses 7, 58 through about 8, 1. Really what we're seeing here is a contrast of Stephen and Saul. And what we see in this text is that pain has to go somewhere. Your pain has to go somewhere. Now, for a lot of us, I speak as a person who's more stoic, right? I have, re- I have succumbed to all of the shuns. Aggression, well, that doesn't work. So then you go to repression. Well, that doesn't work. Now you're in depression, right? You've bottled up all of your pain because the pain has to go somewhere. And you've learned, or in my case, I've learned that anger isn't helpful. So then I direct that anger inward, right? But that's not working either. Where is my pain supposed to go? How do I actually deal with my pain? There's an adage in counseling called hurt people, hurt people. Probably you've heard this phrase before, hurt people, hurt people. Well, Saul is the poster child for a hurting person hurting people. All of his acts here are brutal acts of pride. He doesn't know what to do with his pain, and so he's pushing it outward on other people. We don't know exactly what Saul's pain was, but we know that he was like the Pharisee of Pharisees. He studied under the top rabbi of that time. Perhaps his pain was just feeling like this was such an injustice against the faith. That this was somehow a a growing movement of people that were doing the wrong thing and it hurt his pride as somebody who represented this. I don't know exactly what Saul's pain was, but it's clear that he is out hurting people as a result of that being infringed upon. And in this passage, Stephen appears to lose, right? He's stoned to death and Saul appears to win, right? But if we look deeper Who actually maintains their sense of self? Who maintains their sense of self? Who gives their sense of self in total integrity into the infinite and asks that it be received into the infinite, totally intact? Who does not become a hypocrite, but maintains who they are regardless of circumstances, even if that means they must die in order to maintain their complete sense of wholeness of self? Let me put a little skin on this. Paul was trained by the rabbi Gamaliel. Okay, we, see, we hear him say this in Acts 22, verse 3. We have to do a little cross-referencing to see what this means. In Acts 5, verse 34 through 39, you probably don't remember this, but Gamaliel actually argued to the high priests and the council when Peter and the apostles were being imprisoned in question. He argued for temperance. He argued to avoid violence against Peter and the apostles. Saul is his top student. And is Saul here doing an act of temperance? Is he following in the schooling of his teacher, of his rabbi? At that time, to follow a teacher, they they modeled behavior and you followed that model. Saul wasn't just applying the principles differently. He was being hypocritical. He was being rash, hot-tempered, prideful, and he was actually losing his sense of self because of his pain. 
He had given into his fears of the followers of the way and their disruption to what is right. And in doing so, he began to lose himself. This is what happens to us when we get angry, by the way. We start to lose who we are. When we succumb to our pain, we begin to lose who we are. We begin to act unlike ourselves out of our pain. Normally, happy people become depressed and upset. Normally, people who are okay going with the flow become controlling. Think of Gollum in Lord of the Rings as somebody who's succumbing to that, right? My precious. You just begin to distort and become a monster. When you have given into your pain and you begin to feed off of it three meals a day. Acts 9 verse 1 tells us that Saul was also making murderous threats. He's not just throwing both men, by the way, and women in prison, this text tells us. But he's making murderous threats to them. This is not a good guy. Pain has not been good for him. He has not handled his pain well. And the text underscores this in 8 verse 1 when it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. So the implications for us right off the bat from our pain is when we have the fears of losing ourselves or our dreams or our hopes or our identities or our goals, our possessions, our agency, our lives, that we, because of sin, have a tendency to hurt people. We will know this because we will turn into hypocrites. So what's our other option? Let's look at Acts 7, 59 to 60. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And he had said this, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Godly men, verse two, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Stephen is the model for what we do with pain. Stephen is giving his pain in a radical act of faith. He's giving his pain. And what happens is something like alchemical. If you're familiar with medieval alchemy, this idea that you can combine disparate things together and create something totally different. This sense of magic of something greater than the sum of the parts. That our pain is healed not by pushing it out and forcing it on others, but by giving it away to one who has offered to carry it for us. That's what it means to be giving our pain to Jesus. Now, if you ask somebody who has given their pain to Jesus, you will not get a simple answer and it will not always be the same answer, but they are not lying. Oftentimes they have done it in this magical, greater than its some of its parts, miraculous way. I had the privilege um, this Friday of watching um, the graduation of five different participants from Portland Rescue Mission through Megan's work. And there were five guys here who had traveled for a year from pain to joy, who had traveled for a year in addiction recovery, who had misused their hurt. These were hurting people, hurting people. And what I saw wasn't what I would have expected from joy. Joy is like one of the most misunderstood Christian traits, right? Because we tend to use joy in culture a lot to mean happiness. But I didn't exactly see happiness. 
in the sense that I didn't experience or watch people in this total state of happiness or exuberance or ecstasy or in any way, the sense where they were just always smiles all the time and everything was great and it was, you know, carefree. Instead, joy looked like relief and resolve. These guys up there were relieved and they were assured. It was like they had a confident peace up front, uncomfortable, pulling at their clothes, you know, not like pulling out, unwrapping, folded 10 times, you know, their speech, laying it out and shuffling the papers. But they had this confident peace in what they had written and they had this real sense of joy. And over and over again, they conveyed this assurance that they could do this because of Jesus and the people that Jesus had put in their life. And it was because of these brothers around them and the staff members and because of their Lord on high that they could do this. And they knew, they knew they were not alone. It's powerful. This kind of joy rings through with my experience too. And what especially fit with the way that they were articulating their joy is that these guys were not out of the woods and they knew it. They had joy without being through everything. The graduation is this marker of re-entry into their old lives again. I mean, these people are going to have to go through back to family who knew them as addicts, back to friends who used to drink and do drugs with them. There's got to be some trepidation of like re-entering that space as a new and different person and holding on to that conviction. But to me, that kind of joy seems more down to earth and more real and more fitting for the Christian life in general because it fits the now and the not yet. The fact that we live in a time where we can be joyful even though the things around us are not reconciled and not perfect in the way that they one day will be. John 15, verse 9, has Jesus telling the disciples in the upper room discourse before he's going to go to the cross, this final time where he gathers them around and does some deep, deep training. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is what he tells us so that his joy can be in us and that our joy can be complete. Wait a second. What does he tell us? As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Jesus loves me. That's a sure fact. He loves me. I need to remain in his love. And then if I keep his commands, which is an act of remaining in his love, he says, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I'm proof, he's saying. So now my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. All we need is Jesus for our joy to be complete. That's what that tells us. The bottom line, all we need is Jesus. Now look at what happens when Stephen gives his pain to Jesus. Look at the results of this. This is just a hint of what could happen. Augustine wrote, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. What's the prayer of Stephen? 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. And here's Saul standing back, the direct contrast, and Saul approved of their killing him. I don't know, I think the narrator's putting those two characters really close together to allude to the fact that Saul is overhearing this, that this was a moment as we're gonna be leading up into Acts and this, the baton is gonna be passed from Peter to, to Saul and then Paul as the main character. Luke is setting up the narrative to help us understand the radical transformation that's gonna happen when Stephen modeled what Saul couldn't listen to yet, when he modeled moving from pain to joy. And this is just a hint of the transformational healing that can happen. I mean, how much further could you come than from Saul, a guy imprisoning and having murderous thoughts to men and women, becoming the leader of the Christian movement? So let's ask ourselves, how do we give our pain to Jesus. How do we give our pain to Jesus? Acts 2 shows us as a result of Stephen's death, here's Stephen doing it. He's doing the thing, but we're not exactly seeing how. We don't have like a lot of story with Stephen. So let's look at the people that were closest to Stephen and the early Christian church for a lesson on how we can give that pain to Jesus. We see in Acts 2 that these godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. So the first lesson we have with going from pain to joy is that we must feel our pain. Especially for men, I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but like we don't like to feel it, right? To feel our pain. Sometimes this comes with tears hit me this week, that very often tears indicate that we are in the presence of the holy. Tears indicate that we are experiencing an expression of the true self of somebody. When you're in an argument and finally the other person just can't go on anymore and they break down in tears, you are getting the pure expression of what they're really dealing with. They break down, cornered and no longer able to articulate arguments or say anything, and they just express who they are to you. And if you're a good listener, you have to let that. That's a holy moment. Suddenly the argument can shift. No longer you are, you, at least in my case, no longer am I on the attack. I go, oh my gosh, I'm in the experience of something much bigger than I realized. Maybe I didn't think this was that big of a deal. And now I'm in the experience of something holy, something that I need to take my shoes off to listen to, something that really, really matters. And often it is in crying ourselves and feeling the pain that we are traveling through the pain. How many people have cried and felt a lot better afterward, but nothing's changed? I mean, come on, this is like a universal experience. You cry it out. And you go, gosh, okay, I think I can do it, right? Like you just have to travel through the pain, travel through the storm to start the process. And part of that is realizing something just very theologically accurate that we are out of control of the situation. We, we can't control it all. And so part of crying, I think, part of feeling the pain is giving up the sense of trying to hold things together that can't be held together and admitting 
that we cannot conquer the problem and yet realizing existentially, like as part of who we are, as part of the nature of being, that we must live through it. Like there's no other option but forward. So get the tissues and like settle down and check my watch and see if when my next appointment is and like buckle up and here we go. Feel the pain, but culture will tell us to feel the pain and just that's it. But where does the pain go? How is the pain that's not gonna come back tomorrow and the next day and the next day? The Bible tells us to feel the pain with Jesus. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Godly men. They were feeling the pain with Jesus. And then we see in verse two also that they are facing the pain that they are facing the storm. We see in this process that they go and are scattered. Verse four, those who had been scattered. Now, what does this, what does this text say? Does it say godly men buried Stephen and hid in caves? Does it say godly men were scattered and just gathered with their families in the back room and hid. Godly men scattered across the country and tried to blend in and look like everybody else. No. They preached the word wherever they went. You know, we might think that Saul would come house to house and drag off women and men and put them in prison. And then those who listen to it and respond to it would take up arms in rebellion would become suicide bombers, would deny Jesus, would get on with their lives, would realize that we can't make this work. Our family's going to die. Like, we're in trouble. I can't do this anymore. What's best for my family is to just lay low. Well, they, they did. They got out of the way. They scattered. But they didn't change who they were. Just like Stephen, who unto his death maintained his sense of who he was in the deepest part of his being, Christians realize they cannot give up who they are. Instead, with Jesus, they must travel through and face the pain. Nobody in this story is running away. You can look at the story and you can go, wait a second. Okay, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Well, you could read that and say, okay, so the apostles didn't run and everyone else ran? What does scattered mean? Who was right and who was wrong here? Both of them were courageously doing what they could do in the situation. The apostles couldn't leave. They had responsibilities. They're the captains of the ship. They can't abandon ship. They've got to keep the ship going for the people that are there. And so the apostles knew that they couldn't go. The other people had the freedom to go. In fact, I bet the apostles said, get out of here, like while you still can. But that was not an excuse for them to run away. Instead, they went to where? They went to Samaria. If if you're familiar at all with the reputation of Samaria, this is like 
This is like going into enemy territory. This is going into the most ethnically hated groups against each other because Samaria had sort of compromised and welcomed other gods into their pantheon of gods. They had changed the belief system. There's a long history and Samaria would have been disliked by the Jews. They were not running away. They were going, the only way to go to Samaria, so I'm going to face the pain with Jesus. God will use the evil will of this world to bring good. That's part of what this shows us. The persecution is not good. The persecution brings real pain that wasn't self-imposed pain. And in fact, maybe some of these Christians understood the great commission that was given to the apostles that they would at some point reach the end of the earth. Maybe they had been hoping and praying to reach the end of the earth. But often, just like them, we're quite naive in hoping the things that God hopes for, but not realizing how he might choose to bring them about. But they don't give up. They face the pain. And then they move forward through the pain. So they face it. They go, we're going to have to go out to Samaria. Now let's go. In uh, storytelling, in, there's, a, there's a paradigm given by a guy named Christopher Vogler called the hero's journey. And what, in this process, in almost every movie, uh, any movie, any, any heroic movie at all, in fact, most movies of all kinds, follow this, this tree that he gives of events that happen. And they all fit into categories. And the first, one of the very first thing that happens to a hero, a main character in a story, is what he calls the call to adventure. I'm just going to read what he writes about it because this is what's happening to the church in the story. And this is what's happening to us when we experience pain and are called to move through that pain to joy, to maintain that sense of what we really deeply believe about who we are deep down. And it always requires facing the storm and moving through it. He says the call to adventure sets the story rolling by disrupting the comfort of the hero's ordinary world presenting a challenge or quest that must be undertaken. The call throws the ordinary world off balance and establishes the stakes involved if the challenge is rejected. Often delivered by a herald, the call to adventure can take a multitude of forms, including, now listen, just chart your way through Acts and see how many of these actually happen. A message or announcement, a sudden storm, the arrival of the villain, a death, an abduction, a man's dying words. The hero may need a succession of calls before finally realizing that a challenge must be met or that it is his only means of escape into what Wagner calls the special world. Many times the hero needs to choose between two conflicting calls. We have all of this happening in Acts. We have Jews that are realizing, I got to pick between Judaism and, and being a Christian. We have people that are needing multiple calls like Saul, right? To jump in to this new environment, to the, what he calls the special world. But we must go into the special world and to return into the ordinary world with the gift that other people are going to need from us. That's part of going from pain to joy. 
But so many of us, instead of using our pain to move us forward, we want to look back, right? Like Lot's wife with Sodom and Gomorrah. We want to look back. I remember in college, in art school, a, a guy said, man, you know, one of the worst things about art is sentimentality. And I go, what's so wrong with sentimentality? I mean, sometimes we just need like nostalgia. You know, we need that like really romantic picture that feels sentimental. And I argued foolishly for sentimentality, which he called a bad word. And I've been realizing more and more that what he meant is sentimentality is when you look back on something that was so great but you have no, no, no courage, no bravery. You're not going forward into the new thing. You're not facing the pain. You're wishing for a thing that is in the past and can no longer be. It becomes self-indulgent. Oftentimes romantics have a particular pull to this kind of thinking. And what we happens is we no longer see accurately. What we do is we fuel our own desires by looking at some past excitement or desire that was fulfilled. We look at the comfort that was. We embrace the known versus facing the unknown. We live by facts versus faith. And many, many, many of our viewing habits and our distractions are fueled by this kind of self-indulgence retreating into exaggerated things, abandoning responsibilities, whether they're spiritual or civic or personal, for a feeling that won't last, and we know it when we start. We talked uh, the other week about how the temple was going to be no longer. If you remember at the last part of Acts before we left, we talked about how the temple, they were just nostalgic. They were sentimental about the temple, really the high priests. And that's not what's going to move. That's not where God is moving forward into the world. That home is no longer home. If God isn't at home where you used to be and he's over here, home is with him. And he's always on the move. So the church must move forward with Jesus on this great call to adventure through pain, and they must make a life after one pain that will last through pain again. The pains don't go away. The pains will continue until we die. Death itself is a great pain that we will have to face and head through, just like Stephen. For every single one of us, nobody gets out of it. But it is by belief in Jesus that we seek joy. So we face the storm, we move forward through pain with Jesus, and then we make a life with Jesus. If we just make a life, it's still going to fall apart. This is the, the, the story of building your house on the rock or the sand. We must make a life then with Jesus. And the way that Stephen does this, so simply put, just a few words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We must ask, like Stephen, for Jesus to receive us, to enter into his home and to follow his ways. This requires two really specific kinds of resolve for us as people, I think. Two things that this is kind of my experience, moaning with the text. 
What are the two types of resolve that I witnessed in those guys standing up there? What are the two types of resolve I've seen with myself? The first is to become undaunted by mystery. This is a really tough one and we have to practice it daily. Just become undaunted by the fact that the thing I see in front of me, I don't understand yet. I I don't get it. I don't get it. Like I expected something else in what I see right now and God, I don't get it, okay? Philippians 4, 7 talks about a peace and a joy that transcends understanding will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Think, really think about that text. That means that we will have a peace and a joy that we literally can't understand. It doesn't make sense with what's in front of us. It doesn't make sense with the life we're living today, how we could have it. How on earth could Stephen act the way he did in his death? It doesn't make sense. It's not understandable. Even to Stephen, this text is telling us it didn't make sense. Like biologically, like what he wanted to do, his desires, his impulses, he was acting against them in faith. And that guarded his mind in Christ Jesus. And that is part of what peace is, is becoming undaunted by this mystery. His joy transcending understanding is God coming from outside of us into us and us accepting that we are not outside, but he is. And so if we do what he says, he will bring us to him even through death. This is the cross and the resurrection story. But maybe a good example for us um, would be more using the masculine and the feminine for a second. Guys don't understand women. Women don't understand men, just as a general. There are things about each other we literally just don't get. We will have a conversation 30 years into a marriage and we will say, I can't believe I still don't understand you. Like, I literally can't believe it. Like we, we, have, we have been together for so long and I go, we've been together like 12 years and like, I don't even know who you are right now. Like that is the difference between the masculine and the feminine. That's a good example actually of how inaccessible to us God is. How even after many, many years, there will be parts of him that transcend our understanding because he is the divine. But if my wife or my husband explains to me something about who they are, then that's revealed to me and I can hold on to that. There's a song by U2 called Mysterious Ways that came to my mind. I don't know if you know the song, Um, but Bono in an interview said that actually the phrase for God in the Bible, El Shaddai, informed some of this song. Now the song's about a woman, but it's about a woman that the man can't understand. But the refrain of the song, is it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. She moves in mysterious ways. Perhaps the song's coming to your memory. El Shaddai actually means many-breasted mother or nourisher, provider. It's an aspect of God, the Hebrew God, that was taken on to explain the motherliness of God, the provider. And he took this and he goes, there is something about the feminine that provides something for the masculine that I actually can't understand, but it's good. 
In the lyrics, it says, you've been living underground, eating from a can. You've been running away from what you don't understand. She's slippy or sliding down. She'll be there when you hit the ground. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. She moves in mysterious ways. That reassuring refrain was, was added in the recording. And I think it completes the song. I think sometimes in our pain, we have to realize, just like the masculine and the feminine are so inaccessible from each other, sometimes God's ways are mysterious. And it's all right. It's all right. He will move in mysterious ways. And accepting this mystery is hugely important in traveling from pain to joy with Jesus. He's with me, and I don't fully understand the peace, but he's given me enough. He's given me what I need to take life as it comes at me. Soren Kierkegaard um, talked about this, and he said this phrase, which I love, life can only be understood backward, but it must be lived forward. How many people can identify with that? It can only be understood backward, but it must be lived forward. That's the concept. And he talks about how you must live it originally. And what he means by that is you can't mimic somebody else's life to make sense out of yours. You have to take the divine information revealed to us, given by Jesus, and live it originally. Every moment, computing it and applying it originally to your specific life. And then you find that you are living in peace and joy. Original living. I love that. But it's so tempting. And it feels like it's going to be so much easier for us to just ask a mentor, well, what did you do? But what does a good coach always do, you guys? The most frustrating thing. Right? They ask us questions. They make us apply our principles originally to our life. But Kierkegaard calls this concept the night of faith. He says the person who can do this is living in faith, in bravery, in courage, moving forward through the unknown in a way that will only make sense when looked at backward. So then the next piece of resolve that I witnessed is that they are holding on to this faith in what is known. We've talked about that a little bit. They're holding on to this faith. We must trust as we live the meaning of the Christian life as given to us by Jesus. We must trust that the meaning will be understood in the end. Just as Jesus left in Acts 1, in Pentecost, the disciples experienced the presence of the Spirit, which was promised, and they said, he's with us now. He is with us he wasn't gone. In fact, he's reigning on the throne, by the way, over their persecution. And they are reconciling those mysteries. Why on earth would we be facing persecution right now? There must be a divine reason. The mystery is revealed by God, and thank God it's revealed. And eventually, certain parts of the mystery in the Bible become clear to the apostles, and they actually connect the dots for us. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 is a famous passage in Jeremiah, which I'm reading through right now for a class. And when I read through this, I go, oh, yeah, I know this. I know this section. Let me read it. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. 
From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is a famous passage in Jeremiah because it looks forward to a new covenant, unlike the old promises that Israel had formed, that will come. There's actually not a lot of writing in the New Testament about this new covenant. But in one place, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11.25 about communion, and he calls the cup of Jesus' blood, representing his blood on the cross, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What Paul's doing there is he's connecting the dots. He's saying this mysterious promise has actually been fulfilled. Now you can trust it as fact and rely on it to carry you through the mystery. You are forgiven for your wickedness. Jesus loves you. And that brings us to joy, which is sort of the end game of this text. We go to eight, verse eight. They go down, they're scattered, they preach the word. There's incredible healings. There's casting out of demons. There's healing of the lame and the sick. And it says, so there was great joy in that city. Great joy. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, writes an autobiography. And he says, the search for joy was the meaning of my spiritual life before coming a Christian. I was searching, always hungry, always desiring, always looking for the joyful. That was his quest. And at last, this writer writes, Lewis at last realized that joy wasn't a thing he could seek out or make happen. And that the more he tried, the faster it went away. He began to understand that joy is like any other emotion. If you consider the emotion yourself, you stop considering the thing that produces the emotion. And so the emotion ceases. Haven't you ever experienced that? I'm so happy right now. This is such a good day right now. I love how happy I'm feeling. And then you start to get inward. You start to be thinking about yourself. Pretty soon the person next to you goes, do you just hear what I said? Right? Like you've gotten away from it. You're questing after the thing and you found it and you try to hold it. And as soon as you hold it, it's gone. Instead, he found that the emotion is a byproduct of the experience of contemplation. And so what that brings us to as a Christian and what I found with people with true joy is what they were articulating was in some way a contemplation of the cross that was bringing them into joyfulness. This doesn't look as, as limited as I'm outlining it. It's not like I'm literally going here and I'm thinking, I'm, that's not what I'm talking about, that it's that literal. What I'm saying is they are contemplating the effect of that, the promise of that, what it does, what it means for them originally right now as a defining act of God's love and his desire to be with us. What it means about God's desire to serve and care for and restore his enemy, like Stephen did. To seek the restoration of his perpetrator, to be a witness to the world by his self-giving love. See, as you contemplate the cross, you're able to re-articulate what the gospel is in your particular moment from who you are and what it means to you. And then what happens is you begin to act out of that. You can't help it. You, it is the fulfillment of everything you're looking for. When you think about it, you become joyful. And you begin to live out of that joy. Now, there's a really, I'm going to give you a really simple way to begin doing this. I did not come up with this. I witnessed this in that same graduation. 
one of the guys, I don't remember which one, he said he would read his speech, and I don't know if he had it written in, I doubt it. He would read about a sentence, and then he would just stop and just go, thank you, Jesus. And then he would read another sentence about some other guys in the weight room that helped him out and were there for him. Thank you, Jesus. And then I fell, I fell out of the program and I had to come back. Thank you, Jesus. Right? He's narrating his whole life. And honestly, guys, I don't matter. It doesn't matter what part of the narration of your life you put that line in. It's going to work. Let me read this text. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. Thank you, Jesus. And they witnessed, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. Thank you, Jesus. Every time I say thank you, Jesus, I need to originally apply it to what just happened and understand why I'm thanking Jesus for that. That is an exercise in hope to rely on the fact that we can thank Jesus in every moment. What would we be thanking Jesus for in the persecution of these saints? Well, maybe the fulfillment of Acts 1.8, in which Jesus said, you will go to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Thank you, Jesus, for reaching me through the persecution of these people. Thank you, Jesus, that though these people persecuted others, you could still redeem them, and probably some of them came to Jesus. There are so many ways we can look for ways to thank Jesus and find joy in the most horrible of circumstances. Not ordaining sin, not baptizing it, not making bad things good, but thanking Jesus. I had a, I had a friend that goes, why would, you, why would you have kids in this world? I mean, why bring them into this world? Climate change, the world's ending, everything's going to hell. Like, why even bring them in? And I just thought to myself, would you rather be alive or not alive? I mean, I have a pretty privileged life, so I, I, I'm not going to say that everyone's going to have the same answer for that, but generally speaking, like, am I thankful that I wake up in the morning? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. I'm alive today. Thank you, Jesus. And I think sometimes we have to get to that rock bottom point where we can say, thank you, Jesus, for the most basic things and follow him into joy. And so in this way, what we see in this passage is these people that have great persecution, that their pain only raises their capacity for joy. That's what I saw in the guys in that program. I go, you have been through pain I can't imagine. And I actually believe that it's increased your capacity for joy. It's increased your capacity for gratitude. Jesus experienced the absolute limits, the absolute extent of pain, the full entire gamut through his death, complete abandonment by even those closest to him, torturous pain. And he persisted through it into his resurrection, and he gives the fruit of that to you. And so what the Bible does is it makes our pain in some strange alchemical way a gift and not a grievance. It lets us draw, it draws us into the arms of the Savior who will take that pain and carry it for us. It turns a well of blood, sweat, and tears of our life into a well of living water. Imagine, imagine 
the people who had been scattered, running for their lives, just trying to save their family out into the reaches of Judea and Samaria, realizing I have fulfilled. I could only, I could only make sense of it backward, but I had to live it forward. I have fulfilled your will, God, to reach the nations. That is what is in store for us. And part of our witness, and what I'm gonna talk about more next week, is that part of our witness is intrinsic in, in addressing and facing and moving through that pain into joy. That's part of what is going to make us into the people that God can use in his world. So don't shy away from it. Let's embrace it. I wrote in the letters to a couple of these guys, I said, I said, you think that the staff at this program have been witnesses? You think other people have been witnesses of Jesus to you and you're thankful to Jesus for all these other people, but you have been a witness to me. You have been a witness to me and you're traveling from pain to joy. And I've seen how Jesus's power is more real through you. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Um, we thank you, even though it seems weird to thank you for pain. We thank you that uh, sometimes you wake us up in pain, but pain is not our destiny. We thank you that the pain is not your, your will for our future. It is not what you are leading us into, but it is what we must travel through in this life. But that you have promised us great joy. God, I pray for each of us that we would consider originally how we have dealt with pain in ways that is not true to ourselves not true to who we want to be and not true to who you are. And I pray that you would guide us as we face these pains, probably we're identifying pains that we deal with, things that we think about and we just can't, ugh, I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't want to deal with that. I want to avoid that. Help us to face those things, knowing who you are, going with you into them and lead us through them so that we can make sense of them one day. Jesus' name, amen.